You know, the way we expressed affection in my family was basically by putting shit on each other. So it surprised us all when Dad had a stroke and our reaction was to show genuine compassion. But what was even more unexpected than our response was how much it meant to Dad. Suddenly, the most aloof man in the world craved the attention of his children. And to get it, he started faking a series of mini-strokes, or turns as he called them. First in private, but when he realised these weren't having the desired effect, he launched a series of amateur dramatic performances in front of different family members around the house. I had a front row seat at the kitchen table one morning when he treated me to a carefully choreographed collapse onto the floor. Arms outstretched behind him to break his fall, he ended up slumped against the fridge waiting for me to look up from my Cocoa Pops. Cut to many, many, many years later, and after all those rehearsals, we eventually found ourselves at Dad's funeral, where the priest gave the most peculiar eulogy. Looking down at Dad's open coffin, he proclaimed how Mick had loved his family, and if he were to sit up right now, that's exactly what he'd say. All eyes turned expectantly to the casket, and for a good 20 seconds, I was convinced Dad was once again playing for attention. But typically, he missed his cue, and we went on to bury him. So I was intrigued to discover Kirsten Johnson's story, and how she found a way to express her love for her ailing father, with deep compassion, some role-play, and more than a touch of dark humour. Welcome to My Fucked Up Family. Kirsten Johnson, welcome to My Fucked Up Family. (laughs) I'm really happy to be here. Oh, look, it's so wonderful for you to give us uh, some time to have a little bit of a chat because I guess over over the course of this podcast, I've spoken to a lot of people about some pretty weird shit that's gone on within their families. And, you know, I'm I'm always uplifted by the fact that they can find humour amongst the despair. So it's kind of what drew me to your story because I love it so much because you actually didn't wait to find humour you you went out and you created it, which is an exceptional approach to impending doom, I think. Impending doom is definitely, you know, to be met with defiance if possible. That's a that's such a brilliant attitude. I absolutely love it. <laughs> but, so look, I think we might we will we'll delve in, and if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind starting just with a little bit of a uh, bit of background to your family, and in particular, I was wondering sure. if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your mum. Yeah, so my mom was an extraordinary person. I didn't call her my mom. Um, I called her my mom, and um, we called her Katie Jo, but she was born Catherine Joy Pierce in Wyoming, and her father, there's a sort of an extraordinary story about her father. So her father started out as someone who herded sheep. Uh, near Stonehenge in England. Really? And when he was a teenager, probably a 16 or 17-year-old, and this is, you know, family mythology, right? But he was asked to take um, a group of sheep all the way to Wyoming on behalf of his boss. So he went, you know, in a ship across the ocean with hundreds of sheep and got them on the train and went across the United States and delivered them to these ranchers in Wyoming, got back on the train, back on the ship, went back to England. And when he met up with his boss, the family lore is his boss wouldn't shake his hand because there was a class difference between them. 
And he had been so warmly received by the ranchers in Wyoming that he just decided, I'm done with England. And he turned around and got back on a cattle ship and went back to Wyoming and went to work with those ranchers he'd sold the sheep to um, and became a rancher himself. And that's where my mom grew up um, in Casper, Wyoming, with her dad, you know, being a rancher with um, thousands of sheep. Isn't that a brilliant story? Right. You know, and so, I mean, you know, who who knows what is true in that story on a certain level? But we do know he came from England. We don't know about the handshake, but certainly that was his what was passed down to my mom as yeah. sort of what America represented to him. Totally. And look, even if it didn't happen that literally, certainly the, yeah. the, that, that system was in place. And that's a brilliant reason to sort of return to America and start afresh. Yeah, isn't that something? Yeah. Um, and then her mother was a rather religious woman. And I think there was some tension between her father and her mother about religion um, but her mother was a Seventh-day Adventist, which is a religion that uh, originated in the United States. And this sort of has a phenomenal origin story that's called The Great Disappointment, um, <laughs> where a group of people who believed in uh, a man named Miller, they were called Millerites, they basically sold all of their possessions and waited out in a field uh, for Jesus to come, and then he didn't show up. And all of those people, greatly disappointed, then sort of regrouped and followed this young teenager named Ellen G. White, who was having visions and had prophecies about um, the coming future. So that group of people became Seventh-day Adventists. And so my mother's mother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and my mother was a Seventh-day Adventist. And so I think that's like also a very sort of remarkable story about what America was at a certain moment in time. Yeah. The Great Disappointment. What a fantastic name. Oh, I've been like waiting my entire life to write a novel or make a movie. Like, is that the best title ever? I know. It's so good. <laughs> I'm definitely making, I'm making <laughs> something called The Great Disappointment. There's no question. Oh, look, I think you could do the story of my life and call it The Great Disappointment. <laughs> So your mum, uh, she grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist and, you know, had this, this fantastic little family story from her dad coming from, from England. But there was tragedy in her life as well, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think she, my mother went off to a Seventh-day Adventist college in California and loved it and, you know, met people from all over the world and was sort of very excited on the sort of verge of a new life in Los Angeles as a young woman, and she was interested in journalism. And then her mother came out for her college graduation, and my mom um, was driving the car with her mom in the front seat and her sister in the back seat, and they were on their way to the graduation. And um, my mom made a left turn, and a man who was drunk went through the light and crashed into their car and killed my mom's mother. Oh, that's so tragic, isn't it? Isn't that awful? You know, I just, it's like one of those things that, you know, I learned it fairly late. You know, I think I was 13 the time, first time my mother spoke about it to me. Wow. And I was just so shocked and confused by it because my mother was just like incredibly 
warm, energetic, optimistic person. And I remember just being really confused by, like, how could this person have experienced that? Um, But over time, I became really interested in sort of my mother had a rigidity in her um, that, that I think came from having made, in her mind, a terrible mistake. Right. That there was no, you know, that it was a mistake that, that you couldn't go back on. And so I think there was a way in which, um, you know, she didn't ever want a mistake to be made like that again. Um, and, well, one of the just profound things that happened um, in her Alzheimer's, so she had Alzheimer's um, for seven years. She got it when she was 70, and um, pretty late into it, there was a moment where suddenly she started speaking in this voice of a man that, you know, sort of had an accent that was like a Western accent, and the voice was saying, don't you worry, Katie Joe. it wasn't your fault, Katie Joe. it wasn't your fault. And I just, you know, I didn't know was that her father, her brother, but it was the voice of someone telling her it, it wasn't your fault, and that must have been her in her mind her entire life since yeah. that accident. Yeah, yeah. You hear those stories so often, don't you, that when when people are uh, mentally in decline, there's that thing that has troubled them all their lives that that persists. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just, it is so interesting. Um, so tell us, where did she and your dad meet then? Well, my father went to an Adventist college and then an Adventist medical school, which is called Loma Linda Medical School. Yeah. And that's the town um, where, you know, a lot of um, Adventists live and it's, and it's a blue zone. Adventists are among the longest living people in the world. Really? Um, um, they've got sort of, yeah, they've sort of got, you know, these kind of dietary restrictions where people don't, they tend to be vegetarians, they tend not to drink alcohol, they they don't smoke, um, and, you know, they eat a lot of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it works it works for them. Um, so my dad had gone to medical school there, and my mother was working um, at the Alumni Journal, and... Um, I believe she had to interview him or something like that. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. Um, but they met and I would say that my dad was sort of just wowed by her like that, you know, couldn't believe someone like her had fallen for him. Um, and uh, so that they married in 1957, I think. Right. Um, and stayed married, and had, stayed married all um, that time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they were married for 49 years um, when my mother died. And I've got one brother who's five years older. Than right. Me. Okay. So your mum passes away after her seven year struggle with Alzheimer's. Is that a relief for you at that point? Well, you know, no, no. <laughs> I w- you know, it wasn't a relief. It was not a relief. It, you know, so I fought that disease sort of every step of the way and was shocked by it and bewildered by it and felt betrayed by it. Um, My father, because he was a psychiatrist, was much more accepting of my mom's illness and very patient with her. And I was just, you know, sort of like, what is happening with my mother? You know, I really was, um, I really felt like I aged with her, lost my own memory with her. Really? Um, It was very, very challenging. Yeah, I, 
at the time. So, you know, I've worked in documentary film for several decades now, and um, I was doing an enormous amount of traveling all over the world. I've um, filmed in 86 different countries, and in those years that she was ill, I, you know, was traveling to Sudan, Liberia, Afghanistan, um, and uh, it was sort of, I was working so much that it was getting to the place where I couldn't remember a place that I had been because I was now in another intense place. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, it was, I was very involved with her in her illness, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And you really resented that illness. Yeah. I mean, I just was shocked by it. I mean, I think it's, a, it's I think it's, it, it can be a very shocking illness because the person who you love is just transformed before your very eyes. And in this very, like, absurdist way, and, and sometimes it's sort of gorgeous. Uh, you know, one of the stories I tell is that I'm there stroking her hair, and my mother says, oh, have you gone? Has Kirsten gone? And I said, no, I'm right here. And she said, oh, that's so interesting because your touch was reminding me of you. Isn't that, and, that is absurdist, isn't it? Right. It's so like looking at an Escher painting and you go. Right. So it's like this thing about like, you know, the ways that you know a human and that the brain is struggling to understand what's happening to itself and that it recognizes one thing but not another, um, you know. And then one of my favorite moments with her is we're sitting in the back of the car and and it was very, it was affecting her sense of perception very strongly. So it was her visual sense, where she would like think a shadow on the ground was a hole, and that she could step into it. Um, but so we're sitting really close to each other. My leg is sort of touching her leg in the back seat of the car, and she starts giggling. And and I, you know, what, what are you? What's going on, mom? And she's laughing. She can't stop laughing now. And she said, "Well, I don't know how this happened, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it." But I've got a third leg. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so like that's the kind of insanity of dementia. Yeah. But also, you know, just right. But also that this person that you love is like, they're not there. They're not there all the time. Um, So, yeah, I definitely wept a lot through that period, I would say. It's a. I can only imagine what sort of mental adjustment that is, because, like you say, there can be some real beauty and joy in that if you can just accept that uh, that's what the person you love has now become. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and it's also incredibly like tedious. You know, you have this person sort of like on a loop asking you the same question over and over and over again, or telling you the same thing over and over again, yeah. so that you know accepting it means that you enter another time dimension Yeah, that you have to like, like relinquish your own relationship to the present and enter their relationship to the present. And that's not like at a certain point that is not tenable because it becomes a 24 yeah. hour clock yeah. um, that they are locked in and you cannot ultimately accompany the person. Yeah into yeah. the descent into yeah. dementia yeah. as much as you try. Right. Which leads us to your dad. And what happened to him after your mum died? Well, we had a great decade um, where uh, he he actually, you know, um, 
sort of relished in his, um, you know, being freed from dementia, freed yeah. from my mother's dementia, because he took care of her for all those years. And um, we did a lot of traveling together, and he was incredibly supportive of me when I decided to have children. And um, we had a lot of fun. And um, then we started noticing things uh, that we didn't really want to notice. Yeah. But when you did take notice of these things and you realised your dad was heading down the same path as your mother, tell us what you decided to do this time around, Kirsten. Well, I had this dream. I had a dream that I saw a man in an open casket. And he wasn't my father, but this man sat up and he said, I'm Dick Johnson, and I'm not dead yet. And um, it was like this kind of wake-up call to me. And it, it, was, it, it came to me like sort of fully formed as a vision that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I've been working on documentary films for the last 30 years, and I... Um, you know, I'm really interested in the form of documentaries, like how can we make documentaries that sort of push the form? And so when I had this dream, I just suddenly had this thought of like, oh, I'm going to make a movie with my dad and we're going to do his funeral while he's alive. And I'm going to invite all of his friends and we're going to do it at the church he's gone to for 50 years. Um, And I'm going to make a movie uh, that's going to be funny where I kill my father over and over again and bring him back to life. I kill him using stunt people, and we keep doing it until he really dies for real. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do with the next, you know, with the undetermined number of years of the rest of his life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, now saying, saying that out aloud, do you still realize how insane that sounds? It's totally insane. It is literally totally insane. And I told it to both my father and my brother, and they both like were like, what are you talking about? And my father laughed. Yep. And my brother laughed. Um, and my father was like, sure. Oh. And my, and my brother was much more like, uh, so how are you going to do this? You know, it was one of these things where, you know, I've had – I haven't had very many ideas in my life, but this was really an idea. I was like, this is good. This is an idea. And I can do this. Um, But it was because, you know, I had made this film called Camera Person. Uh Uh, It was released in 2016. And it's a film in which I went back to all these different directors that I had worked uh, for as a documentary camera person. And I asked them to have back footage that I had shot on behalf of their films. And I put all this very disparate footage together. um, And it's a very odd film. There's no voiceover. You just sort of drop into a world, a place where I'm filming, and then you drop into another. And these scenes accumulate and together form this memoir that sort of questions what it is to be a camera person. Uh And... When we made it, when we finished it, it felt very unfamiliar to me. It was a very odd, uh, sort of almost experimental film. I didn't know if people would get it. And 
people received this film with so much love and enthusiasm. I got just, you know, it was like an incredible reception for the film. And um, it freed me. It sort of freed me to say like, oh, I'm interested in process because that's how I had made camera person by asking my own questions. And so I was like, you know, like I made a film that people really liked. I didn't expect them to really like it. So now I can make a crazy film that's a failure if it needs to be a failure because what I want to do is keep my father alive forever. And maybe this experiment of this film can help me do that. Um, and of course, like, you know, I can't keep my father alive forever. So this, this film is doomed, but so it, I was, I felt very liberated in making this film. And the other thing is that camera person is not funny at all. Yeah. Like it's sort of, as, it's like as serious as a heart attack yeah. uh, or several heart attacks. And there's like one laugh in the whole movie. Um, and so, you know, between my mother's Alzheimer's and making camera person, I was like, I cannot continue if I do not make something funny. Yeah, right. All of it. Yeah. If I cannot laugh at this situation, I cannot continue. Yeah, yeah. So um, the sort of cheeky, uh, irreverent, subversive, defiant, all of those energies was just like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you're telling me my dad's going to have dementia too? Like, no, that is not happening. And this movie is how we're going to fight it. Oh, it's a remarkable act of defiance and love and dark, dark, <laughs> dark humour. It's so beautiful. I love it. And, of course, the, the, the name of the film is Dick Johnson is Dead, um, named after your, your dad, obviously. And it is, it is just such a remarkable film. And you talk about process, and I, I want to get into that. But, first of all, so you had this dream that wasn't, Oddly, wasn't your dad in the casket? How long after that dream did you broach the topic with your dad and your brother? You know, really quickly. And and I think about it, I mean, it's only recently that it occurred to me, like, it wasn't my dad, but of of course, you know, he identifies himself. Yeah, I'm Dick Johnson. And I think it was me not, like, my dad as unrecognizable to me, which is what the dementia would do to him, render him not recognizable to me. Right. So I think my brain was picking up on it. Um, But, you know, I would say within the week, I (laughs) talked to my dad about it and it was on. Like I I was just like, we're, we're doing this. And, and it just, you know, I was like, my, it's my dad who introduced me to Monty Python, to Harold and Maude, to young Frankenstein, um, you know, to Charles Adams cartoons, um, my dad really loved to laugh and really was always sort of looking for a way to um, make a joke. And and um, so he was just like, "How are we going to do this?" You know, he was sort of game immediately. Yeah, that isn't that isn't that just so brilliant? And it's such a it's such a wonderful reflection. I mean, of of your dad, and I think the fact that the, the fact that he bought into it actually speaks volumes about his character. I mean, from from the very opening scene, you have a real appreciation and love for this man because you just think, what an open-minded, curious man he must be to say to his crazy daughter, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. It's it's just so brilliant. That is all true about him, you know, and a modest person. Uh Uh-huh. 
and a person who, you know, sort of loves his children before anything. Oh, he comes across as so incredibly uh, smart and kind, I think would be the words that I would use to describe him. Oh, I love that. Um, it's true. Yeah. It's true. And I, you know, I I wish to gracious that I could be somewhat like him because, you know, just throughout my entire life, um, he only greeted my um, questions, my choices, my wonders with just gentle curiosity. Yeah, yeah. No judgment. No need to tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, no hurry. Um, and that's what I didn't want to lose. Well, you didn't lose it. You, you well and truly captured it. So as you mentioned, you, you filmed a number of death sequences with your poor old dad. So out of those, which was your favourite death? You know, <laughs> I'll tell you, when you're, when you're uh, at least for me, um, you know, this film is a struggle with impotency, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Um, when I first imagined this, I was like, you know, I want to do these really grandiose over the top deaths. I want to set him on fire. I want to push him out <laughs> on an ice floe. I want to go to Hong Kong. You know, I really wanted to do these sort of epic, um, cinematic deaths. Yeah. And by the time we got the money to make the movie and it was for the first time in my life, I had gotten all of the money up front, front. to make a movie instead of struggling for years to get it, um, by the time that happened, my father's dementia had advanced enough that it was like, I can't put him out on an ice floe. You know, he'll, he won't be safe. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it won't work. Yeah. So that was, like, incredibly frustrating in the beginning. I was just like, I've, I'm doing this too late. I've done everything too late. My father's already halfway disappeared. He can't do these wonderful things I've imagined we're going to do. And I, I was very concerned with like the smallness of the deaths. Um, and then I remember talking to this orthopedic surgeon and he said, you know, Oh, don't you know that that's how most people die. They ah, just trip and fall. And yeah. then, and that's it. And that's the beginning of their decline. You know, he said, some people have heart attacks, some people have cancer, but a huge number of people just fall. Yeah. You just fall to the ground. Yeah. And suddenly that just hit me like, like a ton of bricks. Like, we just fall over. We just go from vertical to horizontal. That's it, right? <laughs> and 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 that, the both the smallness and the bigness of that really um, got me emotional. Yeah, um, I'm loving your sense of disappointment in the lack of scale with most people's deaths. I mean, and you know, and so one of the things that mattered to me was the process of this film. Yeah. One of the things that my father did as a person was to see to see other people, to recognize, like sort of immediately recognize like that another person has an interior struggle. So one of the things that I did from the very beginning with all of the crew, with the people I pitched the story with, um, I asked the question, um, how do you wish to die? So I'm going to ask you that question now. Oh, Have I, you ever thought about how you wish to die? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I've, I've, I've told my family, and if, they, <laughs> if there's a way that they can orchestrate it, I'd be really happy. I, I, I like running, right? And I've, I, I do this run around the national park, and there's one place in the national park, and I just think, oh, if I could just drop dead here, it would just be fantastic. It would just be the way to go. And every time I run past her, I, I think... Wait, you probably- 
if you park late, there's probably a pretty good chance that you will if you're just running and running around there. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> probably. But every time, I, every time, every time I come to this little spot, I go, oh, I wonder if it's going to be this time. And I kind of get past it, and I'm a little bit disappointed. But you know, at the same time, I'm obviously still happy to be alive. But it would just be, I think that would be. Is there a view? There? Is there a view there, or what do you see when at that well, point? What is there? Well, unfortunately, it, it is it is on the water. So you you're running, you come out of the bush, and there's a little beach, and you run along the beach. So it sounds quite picturesque, but there's also a really ugly concrete stormwater drain. <laughs> so but somehow, bizarrely, that also appeals to me. And um, so, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's me. Do you, did you find that most people had an idea of how they wanted to go? Oh, it's so fun to talk with people about it. I bet I mean, it is. because people are all over the map. Some people are if I dyers. They're like, you know, some people's answer is like never. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, very standard is in my sleep. Um, I think that's painless. a bit. I think that's a bit dull, don't you? Uh, totally. Yeah, I mean, like I'm like, oh, you're in your sleeper. Like, and, and, and it's fascinating to me that people imagine that death can be painless. Um, because even if it is painless for them and they die in their sleep, it is the people around them that are pained. Yeah. But, you know, I, I certainly have respect for people who've, who've experienced pain themselves or seen someone else really suffer and they want no part of it. Like, I do get that. Um, I'm sort of partial to, like, an Isadora Duncan, like, you know, you're driving in your sports car and your scarf gets caught in the wheel. Right. And you, you know, you strangle yourself to death. Like, you know, something that makes people laugh yeah, when yeah, they yeah. hear about how you die. Yeah. I, I'm, appealing to I'm, me. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm not surprised by that answer from you, Kirsten. I've got to say. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. But, you know, as I'm, you know, in all truthfulness, as I've made this film, I do think, like, the people who get to die with people who love them, with them, yeah, like that's pretty. That's pretty remarkable. That and and that everyone's okay to be there together, yeah, yeah. right? Like that everyone's just present for whatever it is. Yeah. What do you think about? Because I've often thought about it. Like every time I catch a plane, actually. What do you think about a plane crash? You know, I've been on a lot of planes, and I was on a plane in Sudan um where the driver uh the driver the pilot was this ukrainian guy who was clearly like you know sort of so drunk that he left the cockpit staggered down the aisle went and threw up with the open door of the bathroom and there was no one piloting the plane and then went back to the front and i just remember being like okay I guess I'm gonna die now. <laughs> and when that plane when that plane landed, I was like, you know what? I think I'm good. I think I'm never gonna die in a plane crash because I like just dodged the biggest bullet that ever was. I think you are so right. How big was the plane? Was it was it like a jet or was it a little? You know, it was like a 727. <gasps> it was like a big plane. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was really. It was. It was intense. <laughs> it's, uh, it's people like him who give the Ukraine a really bad reputation. I reckon. <laughs> so look, you talk about the process, right? And um, the, the the film exposes the inner workings of the documentary making process. And it, and the thing I found quite remarkable about taking that peek behind the curtain really was that. It honestly looked like you and your dad were playing. It, it, mm. it really did. So, 
What impact do you think did that, did that going through that process with him? What did what impact did that have on your relationship? Well, we were playing, you know. Um, so my dad's feeling was just one of like utter delight that we got to do things together. Yeah. And as the film advanced, my father would keep watching and watching cuts of the film. And I would sort of notice where he laughed or he didn't. And, and we'd talk about, like, could this scene be funnier? Like, what would we do to make this funnier? That would be even in the case where, like, the dementia had advanced and he couldn't remember that he'd ever even watched the movie before or even remember the scene wow. that preceded it. But he would be in the moment watching the scene. So he was, like, the freshest of editors yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> seeing the scene for the first time. First time. Like, well, that's sort of funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but But – you know, some of the things that were really remarkable that happened towards the end were that we um, created these sort of fantasy sequences and we brought his clarinet. He hadn't played his clarinet in years, but then we started blasting Benny Goodman and he just picked up his clarinet and he was swinging. Yeah. And I didn't even know if he was going to be able to participate in these scenes, but he was beyond participating. He was there with intentionality. And there's one sort of nightmarish scene where um, he's sort of trapped in this space and the idea is there's doors everywhere, but he doesn't know which door to go out of. And we had planned to have one of the doors open and then there to be um, an image of a nursing home, uh, the sort of hallway of a nursing home. But that image wasn't there when we were filming it. It was just a green screen. So there was nothing there when he opened the door. But um, as he and I were sitting on the set together, and he didn't know that that's what I was planning to put behind the door. Sorry for the sirens in New York City. That's okay. Um, he, uh, he turned to me and he said, you know, I don't know why, but sitting here is reminding me of putting your mom into the home. <gasps> and, and it was just like, how is this possible? Like, this man is so... His sensitivity is so acute Yeah. that even though, like, he can't remember what we're doing or yeah. why we're doing it, he's here with me and he is tuned into my imagination yeah. about what I'm doing. Yeah. It was so powerful. And, like, he doesn't let me down in that kind of way. It's like he's still, you know, he'll say these uncanny things. Um you know, it it kills you. It oh. rips your heart out, basically. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. I it? laugh. Yeah, well, see, now this is what I was going to ask you because, um, like, have you always been someone who, who's used humour in the face of despair? Has it, or has that surprised you? You know, I mean, I'm constantly surprised uh, in general. You know, I made this film predicated on the idea that death comes in unexpected ways, that dementia itself is deeply unexpected, that sort of the core of documentary work is being there recording when the unexpected happens, and yet I'm just constantly, like, shocked by the thing that I have not imagined. And that happened so many times in the making of this film, and then immediately after the film comes out, the pandemic happens, and it's like, are you kidding me? Like, none of us, like, you know, with the exception of the epidemiologist, none of us saw this coming and none of us know when this is ending and we are confronted with like the the madness of being human in which we wish to control things that are 
deeply uncontrollable. And how do we adapt to that? How do we adapt with like love, courage, creativity, compassion, as opposed to fear, (laughs) right? You know, that's our challenge as humans, because when you're afraid, it gets ugly, you know, and we all right now have to confront our lack of control and our mortality. Well, speaking of confronting mortality, uh, one of the scenes I wanted to talk to you about was when you placed your dad in the coffin. Mm. And uh, given your your dream, I just wondered how that felt seeing that in reality. You know, this stuff is like what I have um, experienced. And there's a scene in Camera Person um, where um, someone who is um, an anti- uh, government activist at the time of Vietnam, they broke into some FBI offices and, and found out that the FBI was spying on the American people um, in the 1960s, and just, they discovered COINTELPRO, basically. And one of the men um, was the lock picker. You know, he, he picked the lock and got into the FBI office, and he had told us about, he described to us... Um, how he'd practiced picking locks and he sort of built himself a thing with a bunch of different locks on it. So we asked him to you know, describe it to us and then we had it built. And then we went to him and, and, and we pulled it out of the bag, but not before I had turned on the camera. And he had such a remarkable emotional response to seeing that object again, even though it wasn't the object that he had worked with, it yeah. was, it was like, you know, the Proust Madeleine that just like transported him through time. Yeah. And so I've seen that happen to person after person sort of confronted by returning to a place or holding an object or seeing a photo of someone in my life as a documentarian. So I knew if I, you know, bought a wooden casket and asked my 86-year-old father to climb into it and to close his eyes, that I could not predict what it would make me feel yeah. to see that. That's all I knew. And, and what this film, the, sort of the methodology of this film was to say, I don't need to know how I'm going to respond. Yeah. I don't need to know what this film is going to look like. I don't need to know what dementia is going to do to my father. I just need to like be there with him in it, through it, and we'll see where it takes us. And, you know, with this wonderful game in play of like, we're trying to have fun (laughs) against all the odds. We're going to try to have a good time. Well, then my dad's making jokes in the casket. I'm making jokes, you know, like, and then we're laughing. And I just remember my father just like getting like a fit of the giggles in the casket. (laughs) And then I was like, you know, and then I was having him do like thumbs up and then like having him wave from the casket. And then I had him, you know, and then, and then I even had him do like, give me the finger from the casket. And he was like, that's really not me. And I was like, that is so not you. <laughs> He's like, well, maybe I do. And I was dead. You know, so, so um, we played. You know, it really is a, uh, I've got to say, it is a fucked up way <laughs> of dealing with, <laughs> of dealing with a loved one's decline. But. It's so beautiful that you did it. I I just think it's so important, whether it's shame or whether it's sorrow, I think it's so important to part the curtain and and to point and laugh. And I think that's what you've done so beautifully. 
These things are out of our, oh, they're, they're, well, out, they're out I, of our I, control. I feel very proud to be a part of the fucked up family. Um, <laughs> you know, and and it's just so fun. I love that you're saying like part of the curtain. Um, you know, there was this moment um, when we were in my dad's office, and it was snowing outside, and we sort of you know couldn't leave the office, and and then I saw his reflection in the window, and I was like, ah, he looks like the Wizard of Oz. You know, this sort of metaphor for me of creating these like incredible escapist fantasy world in which we, you know, we wish to disappear into worlds with happy endings. But the truth is we're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, cinema gives us these ways to live forever and to, like, rediscover the things that make us laugh and to escape the painfulness of this world or to confront the painfulness of this world and, like, face the fear and, like, try to do something about it. Yeah. Well, you've done it beautifully. So all I can say is thank you for doing it and then a double thank you for coming and talking to us about it. It's been really wonderful, Kirsten. Oh, it's so, so wonderful. And back to you again soon. Okay, see ya. All the best. I hope you enjoyed this episode of My Fucked Up Family enough to subscribe, share or like. And remember, if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share, contact us through our Facebook page. Until next time on My Fucked Up Family.